But the candy, oh, the candy. Are you, we need to talk about the candy because if you've never been to a Lunar New Year in a Chinese person's house, it was so common to go into someone's house celebrating Lunar New Year and you see the a treasures box. Welcome to Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie Podcast. Your host, Patricia Peterson, has conversations with BIPOC folks about life, shares wisdom, and discusses their experience with topics like growing up in an immigrant family, racism, and the sense of belonging. In this podcast, we give voice to people of color and learn more about their lives. So join your Chinese auntie as she has compelling conversations with fascinating people. Without any further ado, let's dive headfirst into this episode. Hi there, happy Lunar New Year. It is the year of the wood dragon. This episode is part two of my Lunar New Year series. If you missed part one, please go and listen to episode eight. In this episode, Luna and I sit down and talk about everything from our experiences growing up in Singapore, Lunar New Year traditions, including going to the temple and rate packets. We also talk about Buddhism and so much more. Luna and I grew up in Singapore, and we both now live and work on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Masquin, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people, commonly known as Vancouver, Canada. I met Luna a few years ago, and it is so comforting for me to know a fellow Singaporean. In this episode, you will hear us talk in our dialect occasionally. Luna is Teochew. Teochew is one of the most conservative Chinese languages. And I am Hokkien. Hokkien is a dialect originating from the Fujian province. Some other phrases you hear us say include Ama, which is grandmother, Akong is grandfather, and we talk about visiting the Kuan Yin Temple during Chinese New Year. Kuan Yin is the Buddha of Compassion. And in Singapore, the Kuan Yin Temple is significant to the Buddhist community among Chinese Singaporeans because it is believed to bring the worshippers good luck when they pray to Kuan Yin or the Goddess of Mercy, the Buddha of Compassion. Now, Hawker Center. Hawker Centers are open-air complexes that house many stores that sell a wide variety of affordably priced food. They are located at the heart of the housing estate, usually with a journey wet market. We also talk about Ao Bao, Hong Bao, rate envelope. It's a gift of money inserted into a rate pocket of paper. They are traditionally given to single people and kids by the elders. So put on a pot of coffee, go for a walk, put on your headphones and listen to this delightful and lovely conversation. Good morning, Luna. Hi. How's it going? But then we're going to start with this. Okay. Uh, you're Hokkien. I'm Teochew. Oh, you're Teochew. Okay, I'm Hokkien. 
But my ama on my or grandma, my grandma on my mom's side is uh, Hokkien. Okay, so for the listeners, Hokkien Teochews are a part of Chinese dialects. So did you grow up speaking Teochew or Hokkien? I grew up speaking both, but more Teochew than Hokkien because my on my dad's side, we're all Teochews. As far as I know, my mom's dad is also Teochew. And correct, he's Teochew because he comes from a very specific part of China called Suatau. Okay. And after he passed away, we managed to get in contact with his brother in Swatow, which I have never met. So I have a, a great uncle that, that I've never met. And I have cousins in Swatow that I've never met. But yes, growing up, I spoke mostly Teochew, then Hokkien. Me? Yeah. Oh, before I ask you the next question, please introduce yourself so we get to know who you are. <laughs> Since we're talking about Teochew and Hokkien, I will do this. What's his Singapore lang? Or two C's in Singapore lang? Junto Kanatae. Kiari, Zinja Kuisi Mesaika, Patricia Tote. I don't know how to say it in Teochew, but I'm going to do it in Mandarin, which is Liao Tian Tan Si. And yeah, so I just introduced myself in Teochew, and what I said was, hello everyone, uh, my name is Luna Aishin. It means Moon Loving Heart. It's not my birth name, but it's a name that I've given myself. And growing up, because my family was Buddhist Taoist, mm. we used to talk about how monks would have very special names if mm-hmm. you enter into Buddhahood. Mm-hmm. So I consider Luna Aishin as my sort of like spiritual name. And it's a name I connect to more than my birth name. Because my birth name is actually Heng Kia Hyung. Or in Mandarin, it will be Wang Jia Xiong. It's a very masculine name, which leads to a conundrum for me because I'm a non-binary person. And I feel very not 100% masculine. Well, so, is it, the word Xiong is quite masculine. Yes. So the word Xiong is a very masculine word. It's if you mispronounce uh, it or because Chinese language, one word mm-hmm. can be pronounced in the same way, but it means different things. Mm-hmm. So when I was in school, my teachers loved to call me a bear, a Xiong. Oh. But my, but the actual pronunciation for my name is uh, also Xiong, but it means masculine. Yeah. And, and the story behind that name is that <laughs> I just had this conversation. It's very funny that when I was born, I was a frowny baby. I kept, <laughs> my eyes were just like small. I was always like pissed off. And then my parents and auntie look at me. They're like, wow, this kid is not happy with the world. No. I was gonna, ju- I was gonna tease you and say you, you answered the world yourself already. <laughs> and so in Teochew, Hyung sounds like Xiong, which means like fierce. Mm-hmm. And in my family, in a lot of Chinese families, we always keep the middle character as the generational name that everyone uses. Mm-hmm. So in my family, Hia means the best. And Heng is the king. So if you put it together, my birth name is the best masculine king, but I'm a non-binary person. 
So that really clashed for 40 years. And then I finally decided that this is not the name that I want to go by. I just don't relate to it. <laughs> so uh, there's another story behind Luna Aishin. But I really wanted to, I think in Tibetan Buddhism, they always talk about the Buddha that you want to be. You have to live that life throughout your entire lifetime. <laughs> and if you're lucky, you've practiced enough the qualities of that Buddha, then you can give yourself that name or you can paint that Buddha or Tanka before you passed away. So when I turned 40 years old, I decided that I want to become an elder in training. And, mm. and what that would mean for me is that I really need to be honest with myself about my name and going against traditions because it's so important for our ancestors to always be like you need to carry on the family's name mm -hmm. and i'm going like no i need to create a name that will bring good karma to my family so i really relate to a moon and that's a whole story but i Xin means loving heart and that is the quality that i am wanting to cultivate from elderhood from the day i initiated myself into elderhood until i die i love that that's beautiful I think you're on your way, knowing you. Oh, <laughs> I got lots to learn. <laughs> you have to give up that pissed off baby energy first. And yeah. embrace the loving icing energy. <laughs> Next time I will show you a photo of my, I'll send you my baby photos. And you'll oh, be like, oh, please. Yeah. Then, oh, yeah, that's exactly why. When you talk about the Buddhist, so I'm an ordained Buddhist. And I was given a Buddhist name. But I never connected so my Buddhist ordained name is Jing Dun. Jing Dun, as my Buddhist teacher explained, it's like gentle and calm. And I don't think I'm gentle and calm. You're not gentle and calm? That's why you've been given the name? Maybe. <laughs> I would ask him, but he died a couple of years after I was ordained. I am gentle and calm a lot of the times, but it doesn't resonate with me, that name, so. It makes sense to, it makes sense to me though. Like respectfully, I, I feel like the Buddhist stories that I grew up with, a lot of the older monks will give younger monks these names because they want them to build that quality mm. or to bring out that quality. And for me, I feel like when I hear you say that, it doesn't indicate that you're like any lesser of a human being, but I feel like maybe your teacher was like, that is the quality that Eventually, you might connect to when you grow older. I don't. Who knows? Maybe because I was ordained when I was twenty-two. Oh my! So I must maybe I, because I think I'm calmer and more gentle. Let's get older. <laughs> it's, a, it's only yes. been thirty years since I've been ordained. Wow! So, you were yeah. ordained at twenty-two years old. Did I not tell you this? My mother was against it. My mother had the idea that. What if you married a non-Buddhist? And I said to my mother, so what if I married a non-Buddhist? But she was like, no. So one of my girlfriends and I just, we didn't tell my mom and both of us got our date. Whoa. Oh, that is so cool. And she ended up marrying a, a Hindu, which is, I mean, closer to Buddhist than my husband, who's an atheist. Yeah. Wow. Oh, I love that story. It's like the Western equivalent of like, we're just going to go be witches now. 
It's true. So just get yourself into a cupboard. But it's like such a big deal in, in Singapore, though, I feel like. To be to like ordained? be ordained as the Buddhist, because I remember telling my mom the same thing. Okay, maybe for listeners. In Singapore, there's a very big temple uh, called Guangming Shi. Mm-hmm. And that was very close to where I live, which is Amukyo, which translates into the bridge of the white man or the, the bridge of the, the red hair man. And there's some rumors, historic rumors that there were used to be a bridge that was only used by white men. And so that's why it's called Amukyo. But there's a temple called Guangmingshi, the temple of, I'm going to translate this to, to light and sun, maybe. Like thousand or, or, lights or something. The, the bright temple. The bright lights. That's right. The bright light temple. And so it's a huge temple with huge Buddha statues. And I remember as a teen, I used to go there uh, every week because I had a very turbulent relationship with my parents. Mm. And since I was eight years old, I started believing and, and coming into contact with the idea of death. But the idea of death, not just, we just went deep very fast. But the idea of like your parents dying and how scary that was. So at eight years old, I used to go to my auntie's place to, to sleep over because my parents will go to work very early and then I could sleep in a little bit more and I could go to school with my cousins. Mm-hmm. But when everyone was asleep, I would stay up till 12 midnight and then I'll quietly walk to the window and then I'll look up into the sky and I'll start crying. And I'll say, dear Buddha, my parents are having a very hard time and they're always arguing mm-hmm. and, and I want them to be happy. And if you can, I'm willing to give my life because I believe, we believe that every human being has this amount of years to live. So without knowing, I was like, I'm willing to give, I don't know, 10, 20 years of my life so that my parents can live longer and they can be happier. And I then will always go to the temple when I started going to secondary school, which is 13 years old. And I started taking the bus to the temple every week. And I'll go sit in front of the statues and I'll go walk around the temple. I will participate in this yearly uh, or annual practice that they do called San Gui Ipai. So you do three steps and then you prostrate. You, yeah, you kneel you bow down, down. You bow down and put your body down. So I did that the first time when I was 15 years old, walking 5K by myself. And my parents didn't know. And I did all of that. And I, I feel like, I don't know how we got here, but, but the, the sort of understanding of death and, and time and, and, and stars and thinking about death really made me very spiritual. Oh. And so one day I told my mom, I said, Hey, maybe one day I will go be a monk. And I could see on her face. I still remember on her face. She had this, that's very good. Uh, but what happens after that? So in her, because in her mind, if you go to the temple as an ordained Buddhist and becomes a monk, it also means that the stories that we've been taught as kids is that if your kid becomes a monk, they leave home. They leave their name, they leave their family, and they're no longer a part of your family, right? And so I think that was very scary for her. But I've come very close. I've come very close to walking up to 
a monk and be like, yo, take me as your disciple. Can I join your coven? Coming, coming son is where I was ordained. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. So I did the, the three steps prostate. We did that first and then they did the ordained ceremony. After three steps and prostate and bow ceremony, I think, how long did that take? Do you remember? Was it like, oh my it was goodness. over an hour, wasn't it? Oh, mine was very long because we didn't do it in the hall. We did it around outside. The yeah, we, I did too. It was around and then there was pavement and stuff. I remember and then it was hot. And yeah, I, I remember doing it um, like maybe starting at 5 p.m. Because by the time it finished, it was dark. Oh, okay. No, mine was the day I got ordained. I think we started doing it at 7 or 8 a.m. Uh, no, because, mine went into the night. Because then it would be so hot. Because then with the ceremony for those of us who were getting ordained, then it was in the big hall. And yeah. Oh, that's fair. I think because the, the time that I went, it was, it was Vistak Day. Vistak it must day, have yeah. been busy. Oh, yeah. There were like thousands of people. Yeah, people who, who may be listening. Vistak Day is the Buddha's birthday. And it happens mm-hmm. in May. I think May 12th, May 11th. Yeah, around like that. there. Yeah. yeah. And I remember doing it with thousands and thousands of people. And after we were done, we then went into the temple and sat down and listened to scriptures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always remember, I invited you here because I wanted to talk about Lunar New Year. But I always remember the thousands of people at the temple and the smoke of incense like that. Kim says, what is the temple that's near Chinatown that everybody goes to? Guang- oh, yeah, the Guan Yin Miao. Guan Yin Miao, which is, Guan Yin is uh, the Buddha of compassion. Yes. And every Lunar New Year, yes. without fail, my mom would take us there. And I just, and this is like, thousands of people go through that. Like, it's, and now they have a better system. There's one way in, the other way out. Oh, but in our days it wasn't like that, right? You can just do whatever you yeah. want. Now it's like you enter here, you do your thing, you come out. But still, I always remember that thick incense smoke, mm-hmm. and if an auntie or uncle is walking in front of you with their thirty-six incense, and then your eyes start watering. <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. Oh, can we talk about this? Because I have yes. like a, a very interesting story. So for the context of it, my mom is the only person in my family that cares about this. That my dad, he's always busy playing mahjong. He's gambling mm-hmm. all the time during New Year's. But my mom, very pious. And on New Year's Eve, because you go for re- reunion dinner, which we can talk about later. Very important thing for Lunar New Year. But after Lunar New Year is done, my dad will go off on his own. And my sibling wasn't born yet. And my mom will drag me to Chinatown because my grandmother lived near Chinatown. Oh, it wasn't Chinatown per se. It was more like thick car. Yeah. It was thick like car, but the list of the state car is like an area. Yeah. It's an area that's like just after Chinatown. Uh, there's mosque and there's also like a, a area that's uh, close to uh, downtown, like the central business district. And Thekka has this 
famous temple, the Guanyin Temple. So every Lunar New Year Eve, before it hits 12, tons of people will go down there. And there's a market opposite the, the temple. So people will go there for food and then you will go to the temple. And I have very vivid, beautiful memories about this temple, but there's also another story that's connected to it, which is quite interesting because it happened after I came to Canada. So when I was a kid, I remember every time I go to the temple, uh, let me describe it for you. So we'll, the market is at the back and opposite it is the temple and the temple will be closed, right? Because they don't open until 12 midnight and they will be doing preparations in there. But outside of it, there's all these people, but there's also all these old grandmothers. They were setting up a stall with these buckets of water and with water lotus flowers. And they will be folding the petals of lotus flowers into themselves. And then it becomes a very beautiful folded lotus flower that you can bring in to Kuan Yin because that's the flower that symbolizes Kuan Yin. Mm -hmm. So as a kid, I always remember going to the temple and my mom will check things out and I would just be stuck standing beside an ama looking at her for these petals and thinking how beautiful it was. And, and then you look at all that and then people will sell treats and whatnot. Uh, uh, at that time when I was young, there's also a lot of trishaws. Yeah, trishaws with three wheels and you just watch them like pick people up and it's just a chaos scene. But the most chaotic scene happens, I always remember at 12 midnight when the door and the gates open, everyone just in Teochew, we say, Chionga. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that. Chionga. It, it just means, let's go. And then you'll see this guy, usually a man, with the biggest, fattest incense, yeah. rushing to the front. And he is trying to get his incense to be the first incense stab into the thing, the, the, the urn. And he believes that if he does that, he will get all the riches. He will be favored and all that. And I used to just watch this and laugh as a kid of just how chaotic this was of this giant incense that people were holding. And then the rest of the folks are just like, your 36 incense sticks are so small. Okay. I don't know if you know this. So now a lot of them limits the number of incense. Oh no, I didn't know that. Because traditionally... If you don't know, for the listeners, traditionally, like you buy this pack of incense and there's what, 48 or 52 in there or something like that. And the old belief is if I like all of them, I am more devoted. The Buddhas will hear me. The Guanin would hear me. Which is why then the whole thick smoke in the temple. But yes. now a lot of them, especially Guanin Mel, the one that we're talking about, the Buddha Pompensha Temple, they limit now. You cannot like so many. And then they have people who walk around and pick them up. Oh. Because I don't know whether this is true for you, but from my, my knowledge is incense is supposed to burn all the way down because yeah. the smoke goes to heaven. The belief is the smoke goes to heaven, the smoke goes to the spirit. And if you're lighting for your ancestors, the smoke goes to the ancestors as food. But a lot of temples now, you light it, you walk away, the people are in your back just picking them out and putting them out in water. Ayoyo, no. Because they want to control the smoke in the temple. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and the thing is, none of the wives that you get are these 
auntie and uncles putting their incense in. And then they walk away. And then 30 seconds later, it's all gone. So the concept that the smoke is supposed to go to the Buddhas and the spirits. When I was back in 2015, I say to my mom, I'm going to go pay my respects and then I'm going to wait for you outside. It's just too many people. But I'm standing there looking at these temple workers who are removing all this incense and I'm like, what does this mean? Have we changed the rules about Buddhism and nobody follow the people? Okay, and you and I get this. A lot of these rules about religions were all set up by men, right? Yes. By human beings. But I'm just saying, like, we just spent five bucks buying a bunch of incense and you got all these auntie and uncles who are now going around putting incense in, and then they're all gone within 30 seconds a minute. Wow. It means that you won't get the 4D. People listening, 4D is a lottery thing that happens in Singapore where you buy four numbers. It happens twice or three times a week. At least three. Could be more now. Yeah. And then every every week you'll see aunties and uncles, like my mom and dad, checking the newspapers for a small little square column that shows you four numbers. And it has first, second, third prize, then consolation prize. You win everything from $10,000 to 50 bucks, I think. Did they win, your parents? My parents won once. My mom did. My mom won a few times. Wow. Not the grand prize that like she would win like two, three thousand dollars, which is a lot, right? In the eighties and the nineties. That's still quite a lot of money. But my mom was the gambler in the family. My mom's the winner. Yeah, both my parents were gambler, but my mom was more of a gambler. My mom, you couldn't take her to the casino. Like, oh, Singapore didn't have casino until recent years, but they used to go to Malaysia to Gentin once or twice a year. As my mom got older, my brother would take her. Oh, yeah, your, I, your mom and my dad will be best friends. <laughs> my mom, this is gambling. You expect you're going to lose most of the time, especially at the slot machines, because she only knew how to play the slot machines, right? Yeah. So I would, and then because then she would call me and complain that my dad was bad luck because my dad would hang around her and my dad would lose all his money and then ask her for more money. My mom had all these superstitions and I just said to my mom, look, how many times have I told you, you win, you pocket, you walk away. Don't sit there and play the whole thing, all your money. But she would win, even at the casino, she would win from time to time. Wow. Yeah, that's, oh my goodness. I feel like we are twins in experience with our parents because my dad is the same way. He loves going to the Genting. He loves playing slot machines and he never knows when to stop. This is very interesting because, so this connects back. Let's connect back to the Kuan Yin Temple, to the story that I, I, I want to share with you. That So I came to these lands uh, okay, just to be clear for listeners, I know I call it Canada, but I really truly believe these are unseated and stolen mm-hmm. land of indigenous peoples. And I just want to make that clear. Yeah. When I came to these lands, I remember being here for the first 10 years and learning what it means to be Canadian, but also still trying hard to like grasp onto the roots that I have, which funny enough for me, wasn't so much Chinese. But it was more Buddhism was the thing that I really held on to. And uh, because I have gambling, uh, my dad is 
a gambling addict. I grew up having a lot of feelings around money, around people's desires for wealth. And Lunar New Year, I think for a lot of us, as we were growing up, always focus a lot around health and wealth, right? Mm-hmm. And, but the wealth aspect of it, especially when you're a poor Singaporean, it's even more apparent. So growing up, I was fed a lot of stories and, and saw my parents struggling with money. And when I came here for the first 10 years and was able to be more independent, I was still poor, but I was able to start forming my own notions around what I want to do with money, how money has affected like my family and our relationships. And I had this very, I think like a very insightful and reflective experience going back to Singapore for Lunar New Year every year. And there was this one year where I went with my mom to the Kuan Yin Temple as usual. And like you said, small going everywhere, aunties folding lotus flowers. But I had this moment when I, I must have been in my late 20s by then, where I stood with my mom and we're both just waiting for the doors to open. And it's still the same seat, chaotic and people with the big fat incense waiting. But this time round, I was able to start paying attention to what people were saying. Oh. You walk into the temple. Okay, so usually this is what happens. So when the doors open, people, let's go in. And then you go in and people will start mumbling very fast. Oh, dear Guan Yin, this is, please protect my family, blah, blah, blah. A lot of people ask for health. But I specifically, my ears were attuned to people asking for riches, asking for money, asking for big house, big car. Rolex watchers, and they were so specific. And I remember coming out of the temple with my mom after we were done. And I had this moments where I, in my head was just like, wow, that was very uncomfortable. Whoa. I was like, people are treating Kuan Yin like an ATM. They're just asking her for things, asking mm-hmm. her for things. And, and by that time, I had started to learn a little bit more about capitalism, what that meant. And, and learning about why my family has worked that hard and going into the history of Singapore. And I felt so dismayed, so disconnected that I felt my heart sink. It was the first time at the Kuan Yin Temple where I truly felt sad. Mm-hmm. I felt sad for, for Kuan Yin. I felt sad for the practice, but I felt sad for everyone who was so desperate. And, and not that people are like desperate by nature. It's like we were made desperate. In the ways that society was built, it was constant working. You need to be rich to get ahead. You need to have connections with like white people. And if you have connections with white people, then you're like ultra successful and mm. that idea. And so I felt myself going, wow, I would have never known to feel this way if I hadn't come to these lands and learn about some other things. And so that was a very interesting time for me. I remember coming back uh, to Vancouver and just having this very strange feeling about Singapore. And I think for the first time, I actually felt very disconnected to the community and to the society there. And now that I'm older, I can understand Mm -hmm. why I felt that way. But at that time, it just felt so overwhelming that I started retreating from the temple. I started retreating from Buddhism. I started retreating from like everything Singapore and everything Chinese. So I just felt, oh my God, I cannot, cannot just be going to the temple to just ask for money. 
that's not the Buddhism I learned. It's interesting you share that because I have never paid attention to what people ask for. Because my mom would ask for wealth. And I knew that about my mom because we had the Buddhist altar at home and my mom would do that too. So I knew my mom would ask for wealth, but she would also ask for health for her children, her grandchildren. She would ask that we get good grades in school, buy good spouses. But I never paid attention to what other people ask. I can relate to your feeling about Singapore, about withdrawing. So I went through that for a few years until I did a lot of ancestral healing work. Singapore in itself is a very materialistic country. Especially if you grow up poor, you would notice this. For a lot of people, it's about, do I have a brand new bag? I'm a bit older than you, but when I was in high school, it was Levi's jeans. And who can afford one? And I went to a high school that was not in a very wealthy neighborhood. Even now, even though a lot of people don't know this, owning a car in Singapore is ridiculously expensive because the government tried to impose a tax because there's not enough room in Singapore. But people still buy a car. It's like a second mortgage. So it makes sense to me why a lot of people who go to temples are praying for wealth because it's such a status. We talk Lunar New Year, right? What do most kids want? We want the red packet. We want the unbow. I remember as a kid, one of the rituals we did was the first three days of Lunar New Year, you would go to relatives' houses or friends of parents to wish them a happy new year. And what did you do you get as a single person and as a child? Red packet. And then I remember sitting in my dad's truck counting the money. To be fair, I never saw a cent of the money. Uh, <laughs> I saw some. I saw some. Oh, listeners, this is going to be a fun story for you. Mom says you put it into a bank account for us. But um, where? <laughs> I mean, this is such an interesting practice, right? So for people who don't know, during Lunar New Year on the first day, you go to your... I, I went to my grandma and grandpa's house. Mm-hmm. And you have to pay your respects to all your elders. And in return, you get this red packet filled with money. But there's a whole economic and like story behind this thing, which happens the day before on New Year's Eve, is that after... We come back from reunion dinner at my grandparents. My mom and dad would sit in the bedroom on their bed and you would display all your new uh, banknotes that you have gone yes. to the bank to get, right? Because everything has to be new. Yes. And then they start doing the thing where just like, all right, then call, then call is $2, then call for uh, um, a Xiao Gu's kid. So yeah, my youngest auntie, and then you start separating who gets how much, but that's a that's a whole thing to it, right? Because it's like how much you give represents your status, and also how much you get, you should be able to give back to their kids in the same amounts, if not more. My mom and dad will always get so stressed out. New Year's Eve, they start counting and be like, okay. We cannot lose face. For this auntie or for this uncle, they are more materialistic, will give their kids like $10. 
So it'd be super happy $10. And for the like kids that don't really care that much or parents that don't care, you give them $5 and whatnot. So you start separating. And then for the youngest kids who like are not doing anything money, you just give them like a dollar. Right. And then so this whole debacle happens. I watch them like for an hour struggle to separate these monies. Then we go to New Year's. Then me and my sibling will get all the angpaos. Then we go home and they're like, okay, give me your angpaos. And then they start writing the names now of who gave the angpaos to us. How do they remember? Or do oh, you remember? They, oh, I remember. Oh, and, okay. and, and also everyone always have different packets designs. Yes, that's right. That's right. right. And then the more wealthy ones give you the bigger angpao because you know that there's a $20 or $10 note in there. Yeah. And then yeah. If it's your grandparents, they give you $50. Because yeah. And so we start writing down names and they'll be like, ayo, ayo, this auntie, this auntie, why you gave my kid $50? Now I have to give your kid $50. And they'll go through the mental gymnastics and start, and it's like a profit and loss statement, a loss, income and loss statement or profit and loss statement. They start being like, ah, oh, this year, uh, gone already. This year, uh, I, oh, I, we received 200, but we have to give out 250. <laughs> you know, every year. I don't remember my parents doing that because what I remember was my parents would, this memory is like when I was still quite young, probably before 11 years old. When I was in high school, secondary school, I didn't go with them so much to visit friends and family on the first three days of Lunar New Year because by then all my grandparents had died. So we would just go to the auntie and uncles that we know really well. But before that, my parents would go, okay, everybody gets $2. The closer ones would get like a little bit more, but my parents didn't do what your parents did. It was like everybody get $2 and then as we got out, it was like $6 or $8 and stuff like that. One of my cousins, her grandfather was wealthy. I remember going to his place. And this is 1985, 84-ish. $50 packet, my friend. Whoa. Yeah. Whereas Whoa. the rest of the red packets were $2 or $4 if you're lucky. This Akong grandfather gave $50. Wow, rich Akong. Rich Akong. And he clearly grandchildren out of the young, like people come and he was a businessman. So people bring their kids to wish him Happy New Year at the business or at his house. Every red packet is 50 bucks. Oh my goodness. Honestly, in the 80s, that is a huge deal for kids. Where is my money? I ask you. Let's <laughs> go, parents. Where did that go, huh? Yeah, where's my red packet, buddy? In the jackpot machine. <laughs> you know the funny thing? Oh, I am getting so many good memories from this conversation. Like one of the things we did with these angpals is that you play, we play a little game, right? You always do this thing where you just open up the, just the top flap and then you just peek inside to see what color it is. Yes. If it's blue, you've, you struck it because blue is the $50. 50. Red is the $10. And yeah. if it's purple, it's $2. And if yeah. it's green, it's $5. Yeah. Yeah. We did that too. Because my mom also had this thing of don't open the red packet in front of people. 
Yes. Because it's rude. You're not supposed to open a red packet in front of the person who gave it to you. Yes. But then, like, the adults then would, would go to their own area and chit-chat, and then the rest of us kids would hang out together, and then all of us would be doing that. Whoa, let's open this red packet and see how much it is. Okay, look, let's talk about Lunar New Year tradition. You mentioned this, everything has to be new. Clothes, yeah. right? Shoes. I remember how uncomfortable those clothes were. Yes. Did you do the same thing? Did your family do, do the same thing? Yeah, yeah. It, I had a love and hate relationship with it. Okay, so as a poor kid, you don't get to buy a lot of new clothes, right? So when New Year comes, the tradition is that you will show up to, to New Year with new clothes, new pants, new haircut, and you have to do all of that before New Year starts because once New Year is here, you cannot do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I remember absolutely hating that I had to wear long sleeve shirts. Oh. It's way long as a poor person. You still want to look presentable. So you had to wear, I had to wear pants and like I had a long sleeve shirt and I was, it was so hot. It was so hot. Like I ended up always, I remember, I think my mom starting to bring extra clothing for us to change into. Because I go to my par- grandparents' house, it will be so hot. There'll be so many people in a tiny, like, sh- uh, she lives on Beach Road. And mm. Beach Road traditionally had one of the first uh, uh, flats, we call it in, in, instead of apartments. And her flat was maybe like 400, three, 400 square feet. Mm, okay, so not very big. No, small kitchen, small bathroom, one bedroom. And a, and a small living room. Um, and, and for listeners in Singapore, um, the flats are categorized and, and labeled as one-room flat, two-room flats, three-room flats. Uh, if you're rich, then you get five-room flats. But the rooms are not bedrooms only. They are, the living room is considered a room. Yeah, so a three-bedroom flat would be two-bedroom. And a living room. So my grandmother lived in a two-bedroom flat. And she had eight kids. So imagine eight children plus their kids all coming to her small, tiny 400 square foot apartment flat. And it will be so hot. And so oftentimes what my mom will do is that we'll bring like extra home clothes for the children. When if you're young, no one really cares, right? Mm-hmm. And then you go to your grandma's place and then you change out of it. You only change back when all the aunties and uncles come. And oh yeah, so that so that you you look presentable. Yeah, for a short one hour or two, and then you change back, and then in the afternoon times, I usually nap and go sleep on my grandma's bed because it's just so hot. It's too hot. Um, so my fondest memories of going to people's houses was getting to eat the cans. And drink, yes. drinking the soda because we didn't get those on a daily basis. No. It was a Lunar New Year thing. Yes. Did, did grandma do that? Did you have that? We did not have sodas, but we had, we had, what do you call that? She made red date water. So we had that. But the candy, oh, the candy. Are you, we need to talk about that candy because. If you've never been to a Lunar New Year in a Chinese person's house, who, it, granted, today you might be hard to find, but 
back in our days in the 80s and 90s, it was so common to go into someone's house celebrating Lunar New Year and you see the eight treasures box. Yeah, like the lazy Susan, and then you can yeah, and you can spin it. Oh, yes. how much fun me and my cousins had! Because you will spin and you will stop, and wherever your finger points, you open up the lid, and that's the candy you pick. What were your okay? Let's talk about this. What were your favorite? Say top three five favorite candies or nuts for Lunar New Year. I really love cashew. Cashew was hard to find. Yeah. I love the peanut. Why my grandmother had peanut twist candies. They're like little twisty stuff. Yeah, yeah. Do they did they taste like biscuit or were they more they, t- they tasted like biscuits? Biscuit. Uh and but my absolute favorite ones the the colorful green and pink color candies that tasted like biscuits, but they are sweetened biscuits. And I think they're fried, fried dough. And we had that. And we also had Star Arnie's candies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Star Arnie's candies were a big hit. I think another one that I always go for, I don't know if this happened in your family, but my grandmother had the white rabbit candy. Yes. Oh, I love the white rabbit candy. Yeah. Yeah. I have a pack in the kitchen right now. But do you know they don't taste the same? No. The white rabbit candy here is hot candy. When, when we grew up, they were soft. It is was this soft a heat candy. or is it a change in candy? I have no idea. We should look into Google research this a little bit. It's true. Disappointed in the white rabbit candies. So the white candy I have, the white rabbit candy I have right now, I don't eat them because they're not soft. Yes. So my favorite, the chocolate wafer. Oh, the round wafer. The round wafers. And then also the ones that are not chocolate filled, but just like wafer. Like? Yes, the egg rolls. The, yes, thank you. I love how crumbly they are. Yeah. And I also love the little prawn spring rolls. Popiah kind of. Baby. Yes, thank you. I can't eat it anymore because I'm allergic to shellfish, but I used to love them. Oh, people, you're listening. Like what Patricia is describing is one of my absolute favorites, except we didn't have, my grandmother didn't have it in the eight treasures box. She had it in the tub. Oh, especially order from the neighborhood person who made it. And they were these like finger size. Yeah. So for the benefit of the listeners, I'll describe it. They are like finger size spring rolls looking like things, but just like as tiny as your pinky finger. I would say like carry as long as your thumb. That's about it. Yeah, correct. And then in there, it's filled with dry shrimp that has been cooked with like other spices. Yeah. And then deep fried. Yeah. And then sometimes and they put pox sloss in it. That's right. Yeah. 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 Because my two favorite things in the tub is that and pineapple tarts. Yes. Oh my God. Pineapple tart. It's so good. So... It's interesting you mentioned cashews because during Lunar New Year when we visited family, as I got older, when my siblings had left already, I would get so bored at these things because you're there for hours. You go there, hello, happy new year, where's my red packet? And then hours, your parents are gone. You're just sitting there with the other kids. And I remember just being so impatient. So I developed the habit when I was a teenager. I would sit there and eat the sunflower seed. Yes. I would crack one open, eat them, 
because it would take up a lot of my time. Yes. Yes. Sunflower seeds are very traditional of Lunar New Year. I actually want to ask you, so now we're talking about candy. The food that my grandmother made for Lunar New Year's Eve for reunion dinner is oh. one of my most favorite things. What does she make? She will have braised duck mm-hmm. and, and Teochew braised duck. Teochews are very well known for braised ducks. How did it like? Law, law ah. Oh, okay. So it's the black in color one, right? That's right. So it's been braised in duck, soy sauce, and a bunch of spices. So she will have that. And then she will have roast pork. And then she will make this soup that I absolutely love. But it's a pork soup that has cabbage, fish balls, and, and potato in it. And maybe this is just my own grandmother. This is my, my dad's side. But she will make the soup and then she will make the thai, which is like uh, mixed vegetables. It's a very important dish for Lunar New Year. And her, then she'll make rice. But then she follows up with bobocha. I oh. absolutely favorite. Favorite bobocha is a coconut milk dessert that has uh, sweet potato. Yeah. Yam. Taro. Taro. Sago. Right? Yes. Then and then there's the, like these jellies. The green jelly. Short or cold bobocha. Oh, we had a bowl. <laughs> my grandmother won't make odd, but she'll leave some cold, cold ones in the fridge. Oh my God, your grandmother is, was so cool. Yeah, so, she was a good cook. She was a good cook. So our family, now I don't know whether this is the difference between, because you are Tukju and I'm Hokkien. Our family tradition for New Year's Eve, the reunion dinner, as long as you can remember, steamboat. Yes, sometimes we had steamboat. And that was the only time we really had steamboat, like when I was younger, during reunion dinner. Yes, yes. I remember that. We didn't get like the duck and stuff. And we also got, what is that dish called? The raw fish. You sound, yeah. Oh, that, so that happens usually for me on the 15th. Oh, okay. Yeah, for listeners. The, on, so for my family, we usually do um the celebration of the first full moon of the year which is the 15th day of the lunar new year will be the full moon and it's also known as renru everybody's birthday so that's when my grandfather is the yisang expert at home so my dad's dad will go down to his favorite person in the hawker center or the hawker's market and he will have pre-ordered yisang and yisang is a dish that is a very colorful dish with raw fish usually and raw fish with, I think, eight to nine ingredients. And during that day, the family comes back together again. And when we do lohe, mm-hmm. where everyone takes a chopstick and you, on the count of three, dig into this like big raw fish salad thing and you start tossing it up in the air. And then welcome. you say, mm-hmm. yeah, welcome to New Year. And you say things like, what a... Prosperity. Yeah. So, yeah, we never did that in New Year's Eve, but we did it on the 15th. Yeah, we did it sometime on New Year's Eve, but we also didn't do it every year because it wasn't a common practice for us. Yeah. I guess because different dialects also have different kinds of traditions as well. Reunion dinner is interesting because just now you shared that your mom and you will go to the temple. 
after the dinner on New Year's Eve, my mom would stay up and clean um, until 2 or 3 a.m. Because the reunion dinner would end at 9 and then she would need to do a big clean because her belief is, and a, a lot of Chinese belief is you have to have a clean house and during New Year because yes. you're not supposed to sweep the floor for the first three days. Yes, you cannot sweep away all the luck. And so my mom would clean until 2 or 3 a.m. and then she would wake all of us up at 5 a.m. to pay respect to my parents and the ancestors, the altar, and then we would go to my grandparents' place when they were still alive. So my mom didn't get a lot of sleep. Did, did your parents have any superstitions like that? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay, so luckily reunion dinner, because my grandma cooked and everyone's there, usually they help clean up before we leave. Uh, but we, I remember that it is tradition and a practice that everyone had to stay up till 12 midnight to send away the old year and welcome the new year. And only then you can sleep. And so I typically also dislike and have a love-hate relationship, or maybe not hate, love, not so love relationship with the first day of new year, because my mom will do the same thing. Wake us up at 5 a.m. And then we will get to my grandma's place maybe by seven. But before that, we had to go to the market because in the hawker centers, there are like different cultural groups. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes the Indian Muslim foods will still be open. So you'll go and have roti prata, but you will not find Chinese food. Yeah. So you'll go to the Malay stalls and then you'll have your coffee and whatnot before we go up to grandma's. And I dreaded waking up at five. Okay, it's fascinating that you guys stayed up till midnight to let go of the old and welcome in the new, right? Yes. So we had to do that, but for a different reason. We were told that if we wanted our parents to live longer, we need to stay up. Oh. Yeah. And I did it for many years, even after I moved to Canada, like into like my mid to late 30s. And then one year, I thought to myself, I'm going to test this out. So if you know me, I go to bed early because I wake up early. I'm one of those people that I'm usually in bed by 9.30. Then I'm up at 3 or 4 in the morning. And I've always been like that. So to stay up past midnight is brutal. So one day, a few, like maybe 10-ish years ago, I thought, I'm going to try and see if my parents die. The next year, if I don't do it, just the guilt. Okay, we'll talk about Chinese guilt, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's ingrained in you. You want your parents to live longer, you must stay up past the night. I tried it one year and they were fine that year. Then I thought, oh, okay, then. <laughs> this is amazing. It's terrible, the guilt that they put on you. Fine. It's the same reason why I cry at the windows at eight years old. Past midnight. Yeah. It's just, I can only do this at midnight because everyone's asleep and the stars will be out and the gods will be listening because Singapore is quiet. Yes, exactly. Singapore is such a, <laughs> it's such a busy city. And like, do, you've have brought so many memories back for me with this conversation because like when you, yeah, when you first came to, I was like, let's talk about Lunar New Year. And I was like, oh, there are so many practices that I probably forgot. So I actually, all this confession, like went and Google search um, and be like Singapore Chinese New Year. 
uh, our Lunar New Year traditions. And then someone had wrote, written down a whole list of it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I used to do that. We used to do that. And so many of these I don't practice anymore. Do you still do any? These uh, days? I, I still do some. I think that coming to these lands definitely had an effect because I'm a solo immigrant. So I have no first family here. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and during my first... 10 years here, my ex-partner, their family's Cantonese from Hong Kong. And so they have a different tradition. They don't do the yuisa. They don't, they don't toss the raw fish salad. They don't do uh, certain things that uh, Singaporeans do. And I think this is something that I always like to clear up with uh, listeners who are not uh, privy to like Chinese culture, is that Chinese cultures in China are very different from Chinese cultures in Southeast Asia. 100%. Yeah. Oftentimes we get conflated into being the same, but what people don't know is that I, and I had to learn this, that because we are islanders, we are part of like populations that had Malay influence, Indian influence, Indonesian influence and all that. So our traditions are a little bit different even though there's some similarities. So I always like to clear up with people that just because I say that I am Chinese in culture, but I'm also mixed race with like Peranakan roots. And I also Mm. have ancestry in Pacific islands that the cultural part, yes, it, it relates to Chinese culture, but it also is quite different from if you experience it in China. Mm -hmm. Um, and I like to make that distinction. Just because I feel like Chinese diasporas in Southeast Asia are often conflated and forgotten and people think that we're all part of the same thing. And once you realize it, such a stark difference, right? Because we don't all, even just us talking about Luna New Year, and you and I were brought up in Singapore. Yeah. Like even every family, they have different way of doing things. Because yep. it also depends what your ancestor brought with them. And for those who stayed in China, a lot of them have held on to the traditions, I would think, more traditional than our grandparents who had come, like my grandparents who came from China. A lot of the traditions got watered down. Yep. Yes. So did so, your grandparents immigrate at problems? A part of my, so my mom's dad, he was a sailor and he made his way down to Singapore, I believe partly because of the war and he was looking for work and he found himself working on a ship as a chef, which I didn't know until many years later. And because I was, I really like to cook and I have very beautiful memories of me hanging out with my grandfather. He used to always come to our house. To escape my grandmother, because my grandmother was an egg. <laughs> so he'll come in the he'll come at twelve o'clock and he goes back home at seven. But that means that I will come home from school, and I'll ask him if he wants food, and I always wanted instant noodles. So I have very deep instant noodles memories connected to my grandfather, and we used to argue about whether the noodles go in to the pot of water before or after it boils. Oh, it is so funny. It is it's a non-issue. Imagine seven-year-old me 
eight-year-old me coming back from school and wants to eat instant noodles. And I watched my grandfather like put the instant noodles right into the cold water. And then it was, he just boiled it all together. And I'll be like, no, you're supposed to wait for the water to boil. Then you put the noodles in. <laughs> arguments about it that he's passed now but it forms really beautiful memories for me yeah uh, because I was gonna say I would say wait for the water to boil before you put it in yeah you follow the package <laughs> right but he was like no I'm just gonna throw everything in uh, but he so he came from Swatow which is a mm. part of China and some tips for listeners so Teochew people historically in China lived Inland, there were agricultural farmers, and pretty much the I think the Chinese term for it is Zhongtu, which means Middle Earth. I think about Lord of the Rings, so like we're from Middle Earth. But then I think because of circumstances, Teochew people started making their way to the coast, which is where current day Swatow is. And so a lot of the the food practices and cultural practices also change because Teochew peoples are known to really love salted fish. We eat plain con, we eat plain porridge or congee, mm-hmm. and our dishes are typically not as salty as, say, compared to a Cantonese family. And I really lived that difference when uh, I lived with my ex and her family who were Cantonese, and their food was way saltier than ours. Uh, and my family really loves eating fish. Uh, we love our preserved vegetables, and so that that part of the tradition my grandfather carried with him mm-hmm. uh, down to Singapore. And then he married my grandmother, who was uh, local to Singapore, but had a Chinese name. But yet, she would cook, interestingly enough, she would cook Filipino dishes. But I've never known her to be Filipino. What was the influence of your dating? I later found out that I do have Filipino DNA in me. So I, I actually suspect, and we've still never been confirmed, that my grandmother's ancestors actually came from the Philippines and Guam. And there was a very interesting experience for me with my grandmother's cooking because she often will cook. I don't know if you know Sinigangsu. It's a, the, the sour fish. Yeah, I love that thing. Yeah. And so she will make that very often mm-hmm. for us. And it wasn't until, I say, seven or eight years ago when I was in Alaska there was a Filipino, small Filipino restaurant in town. I think I was in Juno. And I walk into the place and they had Senegal soup. And prior to that, I just didn't clue in that. I like rarely walk into Filipino places. And I was like, oh, I will that soup because that soup looks what my grandmother will make. And I had just like this instinctive memory of just, oh, let's order the soup. I took the first sip of it. And it was like, this is grandma soup. Exactly the same soup, exactly the same taste, same ingredients, everything the same. And then I found out that there's an, uh, Filipino ancestry in my blood. And I was like, oh my goodness. In my family, my maternal grandmother was known as a local Singaporean, native Singaporean. Which is very hard to find which is very hard to find, but she's cooked Filipino food. That is not just the soup also. She'll make fish in a certain way and she'll make like meat in a certain way. I was just like, these are all very similar to Filipino cooking. And she was also very dark skinned and she did not 
actually looks Chinese. She looked to me, she looked more like the Islander, indigenous Malay folks. Mm-hmm. So I was mm-hmm. like, my grandfather looked very Chinese, but she didn't. And so it was really interesting for me to find out that my ancestry was complicated in that way, but my grandmother spoke Hokkien and she has a Hokkien name, but yes, she cooks Filipino. So I'm like, still- whether she was adopted, do you think? Maybe. So we're talking about the differences in Chinese, in Asian Chinese people, right? My family is quite dark. The typical perception of Chinese people is they're more fair skinned, mm-hmm. they're slimmer, they have long straight hair. I like to call myself short and stocky, curly hair. And if I'm out in the sun, I get tanned really fast. Yep. So for the longest time, Especially in Singapore, with our critical auntie and uncles that just criticize you for everything. You're, you're too dark. Don't be so dark. Nobody will marry you. Your hair. What's wrong with your hair? Why is your hair not long and straight? Especially with the university in Singapore. Forget it. I step out the door and it's... When I did ancestry work, I was like, oh, grandfather's side, my paternal grandfather, Akong's side, ran... Well, from the south of China. Right. So southern Chinese are more dark-skinned. And stockier. And stockier because a lot of them were farmers. And I was like, okay, we're all so different, but nobody tells us these things. And now we're we're sitting here wondering, okay, what is going on? And it's so interesting when you're sharing your grandmother cooking. I cannot remember a single dish my grandmother cooked. My paternal grandmother. Oh. My ama. How come? I don't remember a lot of my childhood. And my paternal grandmother, ama, died when I was 10. Oh, okay. That makes sense. And she lived in Chinatown. So the family shop was in Chinatown. And we were surrounded by food stalls, right? And this was before Singapore moved a lot of the outdoor foods stores into a building yes so because the building was in chinatown and outside there was an abundance of food stores we would eat from these stores yes so i don't remember a single thing my ama would make yeah oh my ama made a lot of green bean soup for sure because green bean soup helps to expel deadness the humidity in singapore yes so did you plan me eat spicy food then? Because Singapore food is usually very spicy. Oh, lot of it. We ate okay. so many spicy foods. But my auntie, my mom's sister, really loves chili and spicy foods. And I die to eat her ch- uh, chicken potato curry again. Oh my goodness. Can you still eat spicy food? I, uh, do I still eat spicy food? Or can you? Do you still have the tolerance for it? I, I do, but it's lesser for sure. Like I, I remember going back to Singapore and one of my dad's favorite dish is pengkang. What's pengkang, that? which is barbecue. Oh, okay. But he loves stingrays. People here probably will be shocked at it, but yes, we do eat stingrays in Singapore and they're like mm-hmm. little stingrays and they're flat and there's not a lot of meat to it. The chewy. But it's chewy and, and really good. And so we eat it with something called balachan. Yes. Balachan is like a very pungent chili sauce that's made with shrimp and fermented shrimp. Um, and chinchalo is the, is the 
kind of limey, acidic chili sauce. Yeah. And then that one has, yeah, I think it's also made with shrimp as well. But the sambal that is spread on the stingray and usually serve on a banana leaf. Yes. The sting memories of being back in Singapore in maybe 2013 and eating that, thinking that it's like, oh, this is also like one of my favorite things to eat. And my throat and my tongue just burned. (gasps) And I was so unfamiliar with it. And I think like I actually grieve later that I had maybe lost the tolerance for sambal. Mm. But then I think of it, my, my auntie, oh, my auntie, she, because I told you that I used to go and stay with her overnight. So it also meant that after school, if there was no one at home, then I would go to her house so she can cook me lunch and she was a stay-at-home mom and she helped to babysit uh, people's kids. But on the days when she cooks chili sauce, it will be like a hundred steps away from the front of her door. You will smell yes. the smell. As soon as you walk into her house, you start crying and tearing up because this chili smell and the smoke and everything, it's all just like throughout the whole house. And she would just be like, no problem. I'm just standing here with my walk and just like turning this paste. And I'm like thinking whether or not I should just leave the house right now because it's so spicy. My mom used to make chili sauce, but that is such a body memory. Like that yes. smell. <gasps> I still remember it. I know, me too. As, as you're sharing that, I'm just like, oh, I can smell it. Yeah. My mom used to eat chili until she's crying. Oh. And she like tears running out. And then I'm sitting there, and this was in high school. I'm sitting at the hawker center saying to her, are you okay? Stop eating the chili. Because she, she would like noodle soup and she would put fresh chili on her spoon and she would eat it and she would dab her eyes because she's crying. Yes. Oh my goodness. And I'm like, no, maybe stop eating so much. She's just fine. She's got the tissue and then she's dabbing. And I cannot eat a lot of spicy food. I lost my oh. taste for it. I oh, also cannot eat balachian because I cannot eat shrimp. Right? Shrimp. Oh, that's a huge loss. It's so sure. sad. I, I agree for you. Yeah, please. And, and eat for me. I, I next, time, next time you have Singapore with Malaysian, with eat the balachian and the sambal. I, I tell you, there's one distinct memory that I have where me and my mom, because my dad is an absentee dad. He's always never with the family. So I spend a lot of time with my mom. But we did go to a hawker center one time in the neighborhood called Aokang. We call it the back alley, Ho, Ho Xiang. Um, but in Aokang, and this is for listeners, in Singapore, food culture is very... How do I say this? It's, it has its own kind of flavor whereby, like I find that in Canada, you go to all these different restaurants, you go for Italian food, you go for Chinese food. And then when you go into the restaurant, there's a whole bunch of things, right? But in Singapore, one hawker stall can be selling one thing and they're known for that one thing. Mm-hmm. And you, people will travel from north to the south to go and eat this one thing. And the lineup. Don't forget about the lineup. People will line up for an hour to get that one thing. Yes. So in Aokang, in one of the hawker centers, there were two stalls that were known for what is called chili noodles. And it's basically a bowl of noodles covered in house chili sauce. So when the bowl comes to you, you see no noodles. You just see red sambal on top. It's crazy. And people eat that. 
And so I remember me and my mom going to Aogam because she was craving chili noodles. And we sat down at a table and ordered chili noodles and our, our bowls came. And it's very common for people to share seats with you, right? Because yeah. on the table, there's six seats and it's a hawker center. You have to, f- you find a seat, you sit down, you eat. And there's usually no s- you want to find a seat under the fan. That's right. Because this folk art. <laughs> so we found our seats under the fan. And then this 90 something year old Amma, she's tiny. She's maybe four foot eight or something. And, and then she came and sat beside us. And she's, oh, you ordered chili noodles. I ordered chili noodles too. But then when her bowl came, it was not just red. It was red plus another bowl of chili sauce on the side. And she then adds it into the chili. And my mom looked at her. And my mom was like, Auntie, oh no, Asim is a way you call like older Amas. She said, Asim, wow, this is a and what that meant was, was just like, how are you eating such what chili sauce? This is chili noodles and you extra, you, eat, you add extra chili to it? And my mom was just blown away. And I was just watching this whole thing. And Asim says, uh, uh, what's jiahiam? Jiahiam. Yeah. is like to eat hot stuff. She's, and so what she meant was like, I've lived till 90 years old and it's because of chili that I'm able to live this long. And for 90 years now, every day, this is how I eat. And with no chili, she's, I don't like my food. Do you think the chili burned her taste bud? I have no idea, but I'm like, whatever is doing for you, you're living a long life. Yeah. Okay. So in Chinese medicine theory, it makes sense a little bit because when you eat so hot, it makes you sweat and sweating helps you to cool down. And Singapore is such a hot, humid country, right? Yeah. But I don't know, that spicy food. She's chili extreme. Like but, laksa, people will probably know laksa here. I've seen so many people in Singapore eating laksa with extra chili. They always comes with, on your soup spoon, they will add like another dab of chili paste onto it. It's a, it's a stain. But I also love it. I have this frustration of living here because I always am trying to find the pickled green and red chilies. Does TNT have it? Uh, I found it. Yes, I actually found it recently at TNT. Yeah. And I also found it at a place called 88 Supermarket. And I was so happy. So actually I have, like White Rabbit, I have a can of pickled green chilies now. And every day I've been eating green chilies. You're brave. You know what? You do, like, you do it like your aunties do. You make a bowl of noodles and then you add your green chilies into it. Or my auntie will add the red chilies into it. It makes you so happy, though. Doesn't it? It, make, it makes me very very happy. It makes me, if you're not sweat, if you're not sweating in Singapore eating, you're not eating. No, you know? it's and then of course then now they ruin it because a lot of the hawker centers are indoors and they put air condition in there. I think it ruins the whole experience. You're supposed to be sweating. That's why yeah. then you, you drink sugarcane juice. Oh, fresh sugarcane juice. And then you're eating Fresh, the chili. You know, the- all this is so related to Lunar New Year. Like everything that we talk about. Like I know we're supposed to talk about Lunar New Year and we deviate <laughs> a lot, but they're actually also connected to Lunar New Year. Yeah. The food culture, the practice of it. Yeah. Lunar New Year for uh, my family is all about food. Paying respect to the ancestors or the elders and 
don't swag. The first three days of Lunar New Year, no swag. Don't say bad words, no crying, no swag. Yeah, you cannot do that. If <laughs> I don't, I feel every family is different. My family, relatives, I think like here also, like some relatives don't like each other. Yeah. So they curb their mouth until they're at the mahjong table. When you're gambling, that's when it comes out. See, my family didn't play mahjong. Really? No, nobody played mahjong. Oh, lucky you. None of the aunties, uncles, both sides, nobody played mahjong. So I don't know how to play mahjong. Oh, I know how to play it, but I think, I think it's fun, but it's also a curse. When you're living in a materialistic society, mahjong gets abused very often. Yeah. And yeah. I share this in a, in a different episode. So my grand, paternal grandparents shot in Chinatown, in Singapore, downstairs. My dad's charcoal shop was there, but right next to it, they rented it to an uncle who made mahjong towels by him. Oh, no way. When I was younger, dad had been working and I spent a lot of time at the shop with dad because mom was working, my siblings were older, but I would stand at the glass window where this uncle was carving mahjong towels. And he just had that pool and he would do it. And then he would paint it by hand. Wow. Was, yeah. That's a lost tradition. I yeah, think. because now they're all uh, machine-made. Yeah, which is so sad. Yeah. Which is so sad. I feel like as Singapore gets more modernized, the reliance on technology and, and machinery have really overtaken like so many of the arts and crafts that used to be like happening in Singapore. Yeah, it's not, and Chinatown is not the same anymore. My grandparents owned the business, the building there. And after my grandmother died, when I was 11, my dad was given the option of selling the building back to the government or paying more because they wanted to make it into a heritage building. Oh, I see. So if you didn't want to sell, you would need to invest a lot of money to maintain having ownership of it. I don't know how law worked, but dad was like, no, I don't want to put this much money into it. But they made it into a heritage building. But all those artists and these auntie and uncles, Ama Ako, with all the traditions of making things by hand, they all got kicked out because they couldn't afford it. Oh, that's very sad. That's really too. So many, yeah, so many of the arts are, are disappearing now, I feel. Like every time I read up about Singapore and, and what's happening to even the hawker tradition, I think there's both encouraging stories, but also not so encouraging stories of the food is not as authentic now. It's like the sad part of it. But then there's a small glimpse of hope because there's some younger generation folks who are now taking up hawker, mm. opening hawker stores, even though they have degrees to continue the tradition. And I just feel like Singapore got too modern too fast. Yeah. To the point where, like when I was... Even just thinking about Lunar New Year too, what how different it is when I was growing up as a kid celebrating Lunar New Year to like the feeling that I had when I was at the Kuan Yin Temple with my mom. It was really because of watching how fast Singapore just like modernized mm -hmm. and how hard it, how fleeting it was 
these cultures. And in my head, I always imagine, oh, the Guanyin Temple will not be here for long. Guangming Sun might start having like multiple developments around it and change. And a lot of these things are going to get lost and they are getting lost. <laughs> so I always feel very sad about Singapore. What are you going to do for Lunar New Year this year? Oh, that's a good question. This year for Lunar New Year, I'm going to be a, I'm going to be away in uh, North Vancouver Island. Oh, okay. And so I'll actually be traveling up to a cabin on the very first day, which means that it will be me and my partner and Lara. And I actually was thinking that I might do a little steamboat, hot pot thing. Oh, nice. Yeah. And no, now that you've through this podcast episode, revive this knowledge of like the things that that my family used to do. I feel like I want to go get new clothes. I want to go cut my hair before Lunar New Year. <laughs> I already bought bows, red packets, red envelopes. So I'll be hopefully sending that out to some people. Hey, does Bailey get one? Of course. I break traditions. Hey, <laughs> <laughs> listeners, Bailey is my 20 months old bit puppy. A little cute baby definitely gets one. Okay, so people should know it. So I'm the black sheep of the family. So I break traditions a lot and I do not care about giving envelopes only to single people and kids. Yes. But I, I do give it as a token of my love and appreciation. Mm-hmm. The, the, the amount of money to me doesn't really matter. I often put a note of uh, well wishes in there as well. That is something that I have been keeping alive throughout the years that when I can, I'll give an angpao. Oh, that's great. That's yeah. great. As a way, and from time to time, before the pandemic, actually, I had 18 people come to my small apartment and we had two hot pots going on. Oh, nice. And we chatted until midnight and then shared time with each other. And that was truly my happiest Lunar New Year memory in the 20 years that I've been here. Because oh. it took me 20 years to be able to invite all those people to come to my place and we steam up the windows in the middle of winter. So I'm looking forward to having that experience. So I think one of the things I might do actually, Patricia, if you're also into it, is that on the 15th day of the Lunar New Year, I think I should be back by then, that I would love to share some food with you. Oh yeah. What day is the 15th? 15th. Look, I have looked. Oh, you have the traditional calendar. Uh, How close traditional? You mean? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh See, Patricia keeps up with some traditions. Oh my goodness. That calendar is precious. The theme is... Oh, it's Saturday. It is a Saturday. Saturday the 24th. That's right. Yuan Xiao. Yuan Oh. The first full moon of the lunar year. Let me put it on my calendar and then we can talk some. Yeah can have some food. Maybe we can do yu sang. We can oh. do lo hei. Lo hei. Pineapple tarts and ang ku kui. Oh my goodness, ang ku kui. You well, need you to, we need to do a food-specific episode, even though we talk a lot about food here. Right? Yes. Are you making ang ku kui for my 50th birthday? For your 50th party? birthday. Yeah, yeah, I'm on it. I'm on it. <laughs> I'm, on the, I'm on the task. I like, the this, task. I like this challenge. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to make. Okay, I wish you the best New Year. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on this 
Of course. Yeah, okay. we're going to come back. We're going to talk about the ghosts in our high school. Oh, we'll the ghosts. About... Oh. Yeah, no, we'll have to... we'll... you need to come back. We'll talk about the education system yeah. in Singapore. The ghosts in our high school. Yes. Uh, yes. And we'll continue the conversation. So many more things to talk about. So many more things. Yeah. And I'll say, means thank you, thank you for listeners. It's what I always end with nowadays when I'm facilitating. Although, in, oh, maybe I'll leave this episode with a Teochew thing that I learned from my paternal grandfather during Lunar New Year. We say, What does that mean? Which means, it means Happy New Year. Or in Mandarin, but Sing Nian Kuai Le. Oh no, Sing Nian Rui. Sing Nian Rui, yeah. yeah. So Sing Jia Zui is what we'll say in Teochew each other. Yeah. Uh, so Sing Jia Zui. Sing Jia Zui. Gong Si Ba Chai. Gong Hei Ba Chai. Wasn't that a great episode? I really enjoyed the conversation with Luna. And I wish when we had this conversation we were sitting at a hawker center eating all the food that we desperately miss and drinking coffee with sweetened condensed milk I wish all of you who celebrate Lunar New Year a very happy prosperous and joyful New Year This week Advice from Yi me, your Chinese auntie, I thought I would share a few traditions that my grandmother and mom would tell me to avoid during the first three days of Lunar New Year. Some of them are superstitions, but you know, the ancestors have been doing it for so long, so why risk it? <laughs> so a few things that I do remember that mom said to avoid doing are no swearing. Don't say any bad words, especially for the first three days. Do not hang your clothes out to dry. Don't sweep the floor because you're going to sweep away all the good luck. No fighting. And do not buy any books because in Mandarin, the word for books also mean loose. So some of the elders say don't buy any books. Anyways, have a great new year and be good to yourself. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Conversations with Your Chinese Auntie podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Also, remember to sign up for our newsletter to receive free materials and updates. Links in the website, patriciapeterson.ca. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-I-A-P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N.ca. Again, thanks for listening. We hope you have a great week and we'll see you in the next episode.